Fancy segue, Egon. This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. If you want to feed people and not have them suffer from hunger, then you probably should embrace neoliberal capitalism because the system we currently have here in the United States and the system that the U.S. tries to impose around the world It doesn't work when it comes to giving human beings access to the stuff we eat in order to, you know, live. Putting profits before people when it comes to food means some people will starve, especially in developing economies that have grown dependent on food imports to feed the people. What is needed isn't simply more food being sent in from the outside world, but food sovereignty. As today's guest describes, food sovereignty is a system that, unlike capitalism, ensures people have continual access to plentiful, healthy, and affordable food locally produced. In other words, it's not only the opposite of the industrial food chain that we currently have here in the United States. It's also incompatible with the way in which we grow, produce, and distribute food here in the States. In a few minutes, we'll talk about a different way to feed people when we will be speaking with writer Rohan Rice, who posted the People's Dispatch article, Hunger and Food Production in Nicaragua, How Do We Feed the People, which you can find at peoplesdispatch.org. Rohan is a writer, photographer, and translator from London. Rohan's writing covers a range of topics, including, but not limited to, race, gender, contemporary art, literature, politics, film, and football, or as we horribly call it here in the States, soccer, you can find both Rohan's writing and photography at rohanprice.wordpress.com. And you can follow Rohan on Twitter at Rohan Rice, I believe. So it's got that. Let me check something real quick right here. Rohan, Rohan Rice. Yes. So check it out at rohanrice.wordpress.com. Sorry. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Egon, how was your Fourth of July weekend? It was great. You know, uh, went down to Carbondale, swam in a pond. Does it get much better? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Did you go to Southern Illinois by the chance? Yeah, yeah. I've got uh, we've got some friends down there, and it just seemed like the time to get out of Chicago. You know, I can understand that. It, the last time I was down there, I went to Garden of the Gods, and it was in early July. It was like right around this time of year, and it was 108 degrees. Was it brutal down there this time? Uh, you know, it wasn't like that. It was actually a lovely 80 something when we were down there. It only got hot when we left, so. I found it amazing that when you get into Granite City within Garden of the Gods, where there's these huge granite plutons, it went from 108 degrees to like 65. It was crazy how cool it was inside of Granite City. I love that part of the world. It's really cool. Yeah, you get those microclimates. It's mwah. I know. It's amazing. My weekend kind of sucked. I spent most of the time trying to recover from this horrible cold that I thought for sure was COVID. 
That's how bad this cold has been, and I'm still not completely recuperated and not really certain that it wasn't COVID. I was hoping I would be able to join friends on the 4th of July outside the high fences surrounding a private country club here in the Chicago area, where, actually in Chicago, where we usually gather and watch what is supposed to be a private fireworks show. And following our talk with Rohan on Nicaragua feeding its people, I will tell the story of how I found out about that private country club fireworks show. And yes, hallucinogens are involved. More importantly than any of that, Egon, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what can you do that a robot can't? Oh, really? We have a different one. What can you do that a robot can't? What can you do? I thought we were rolling over. What can you do that a robot can't. We've already got some great responses. So. Awesome. Uh, Egan will have some of your answers following our guest. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Magnificent Me and Brett B. for showing their tithing-like commitment and support for This Is Hell. And thanks to Bob T. for supporting This Is Hell. Thanks, Magnificent, Brett, and Bob. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we announce the week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Egon will be reading some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question was from hell is, what can you do that a robot can't? What can you do that a robot can't? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Egon has this week's hangover cure. Ah, yes, the hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the cure offered by FBI agent Dale Cooper, as played by Kyle McLaughlin in the 90s series Twin Peaks. One of the best shows on TV ever. Uh, in this, Agent Cooper tells Sheriff Harry S. Truman, played by Michael Antkin. I'm sure I butchered his last name. Antkin? Antkin? I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. But we all know him from Slapshot fame. And he says the, quote, surefire cure for a hangover, Harry. You take a glass of nearly frozen, unstrained tomato juice. You plop a couple of oysters in there, and you drink it down. Breathe deeply. Next, you take a mound, and I mean a mound, of sweetbread sautéed with some Canadian bacon and chestnuts. Finally, some biscuits, big biscuits, smothered in gravy. Now here's where it gets tricky. You're gonna need some anchovies. However, it's not clear what you do with the anchovies. And this, that makes this week's Hangover Cure, FBI agent Cooper's Hangover Cure from the 90s show Twin Peaks, Drink a glass of nearly frozen, unstrained tomato juice with a couple oysters in it, and make sure you breathe deeply. I'm pretty sure that is the important part. Saute a mound of sweetbreads with some chestnuts and Canadian bacon, and biscuits. Big old biscuits smothered in gravy. And then something with anchovies, but... Every ingredient in that, I absolutely love. <laughs> but on the other hand, I would not try that hangover cure, because like Michael Antkeen's character... It would probably make me at least get close to puking. Putting profits before, <laughs> putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. You know, putting people before profits, big mistake. This is hell, and you can help with our 
mistaken business model of your friends here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, if you are like me, you were not looking forward to all that 4th of July weekend flag waving which sounds a bit too much like saber-rattling for my taste. All that land of the free, home of the brave, chest-pounding and back-padding that we are subjected to every year, in anticipation of all the nationalist propaganda we would be exposed to and imposed upon us, no matter how hard we tried to avoid it. I asked on our Patreon podcast, why should we be patriotic to a country and that, for example... you know, Should we support all of its wars when the alleged democracy won't even tell us exactly where they are fighting all their wars right now. We also played a 2005 interview with economist and activist Robin Hanel, who appeared on last Thursday's show to talk about his book, Democratic Economic Planning, his new book. Robin was on back in 2005 to talk about participatory economics, a system that Robin and his colleagues, including Z Magazine founder Michael Albert, have been working on dating back to 1991, five years before This Is Hell even existed. So it's just the continuing conversations that we've been having with Robin uh, back in 2005. We interviewed him in 2010 as well, which we posted online last week. And on last Thursday's show, we interviewed him again in this ongoing process of them trying to figure out exactly how participatory economics will work. But you can only hear me ranting about being a citizen of the United States by default and a discussion of an economic system that can be democratic by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you sign up right now, you get access to all of our past Patreon podcasts, which is like over 150, maybe, maybe verging on 200 hours of Patreon podcasts right now. So it's like a whole extra year of This Is Hell. Apparently it's a Disability Pride Month. A month I never heard of until yesterday, but has been around since 1990, and that's weird because I'm disabled, so you'd figure some disabled person might tell me. And it's a concept I've been struggling with my entire life, disability pride. As a disabled person, for me, I find it kind of hard to be proud of my disability. I don't get any pleasure or satisfaction from any achievement when it comes to my disability. I didn't do anything to earn my disability. I was simply born with it. Sure, I got no problem with a Disability Rights Month that would focus on the accessibility challenges that face disabled people every minute of every day. And I definitely have nothing against growing awareness of the obstacles that the disabled have thrown in front of them constantly. And if those difficulties are overcome, how they are overcome, and how life can be made as easy as possible for the disabled, then those who are, you know, not disabled. But being proud of my disability? That would be like saying I was proud of being born with five fingers and five toes. Now, there would be ten fingers and ten toes total, just in case you're wondering. Now, if I was born with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, sure, I might show those off. But would I be proud of my fingers and toes? Unless I could do something special with them, like knit a scarf in three minutes and a blur of fingers and toes and knitting needles, it's difficult for me to say I would be proud of something that I've had since birth. Don't get me wrong, it's not that I'm ashamed of my disability, although I have been shamed for it regularly in my entire life, and very recently having had someone mock me for having to look too closely in order to read something. But I'd rather not be disabled. 
I would love to be able to see color, to not be blinded by sunlight and needing to wear sunglasses during the day, even when the sun is only barely out. Uh, to having limited depth perception and be able to read a computer monitor without having my nose pressed against it. I mean, you know, getting rid of that limited depth perception, being able to not have my nose a centimeter away from the computer monitor, that'd be great. So how can I be proud of something that I would rather not be? Yes, there are people who are what we call disabled, who have tremendous, remarkable abilities beyond even those of the so-called abled. There are those with mental disabilities that are not disabilities at all, but gifts. With those special abilities, yes, I could see how one could have disability pride this month, but that's only because of our screwed up view of what a disability is. Sure, I could take some pride in whatever achievements this show has had, if any, and how I overcame my disability to do this as hell, but it's not like I'm making anything close to a living wage from the 60-plus hours I put in every week. And it's not like any commercial or public entity is rewarding me financially for this work or that people who work in this industry are commending us for what we do. After all, what we do is challenge the very system within which the media operates, and that does not go over well with those who would be my peers if this was, in fact, the media. But this is not the media. This is hell, and this is Disability Pride Month, apparently. However, if you are not busy being proud of your disability this month because you are, sadly, not disabled, think of it as Disability Awareness Month, and imagine all the ways your life would be far more difficult if you were disabled. Think of how you can make life easier for the so-called disabled. Because parking your car across the sidewalk means a person in a wheelchair has to go into the street. Leaving a shopping cart in the aisle means someone less mobile cannot shop. Having a sidewalk completely chewed up by decay and erosion and a lack of maintenance, that really screws up the ability of somebody in a wheelchair to go down the street. If you live where it snows, not clearing your walk makes life impossible for those who have mobility challenges. So happy, I guess, happy Disability Pride Month to all of you who have achieved something because of your disability. When I become proud of my visual disability, I will tell you, I will, I'll, I'll let you know. In the meantime, if everyone this month just becomes a bit more aware of the many unnecessary challenges that disabled face, this will be the best Disability Pride Month ever, at least that I've ever heard of, because I just heard about it this year. Coming up, how Nicaragua feeds its people, and how it didn't. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what can you do that a robot cannot? What can you do that a robot cannot? And I'll tell you exactly how I found out about the private country club fireworks that I'm never invited to, but go visit every, go see every year. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Nicaragua once embraced the U.S. system of neoliberal capitalism with its laws and regulations that allow businesses to do basically whatever they want to attain the highest profit at any cost. Did not go well and Nicaraguans went hungry. But after over a dozen years of pursuing what is called food sovereignty, Nicaragua is now feeding the vast majority of its people and the nation has grown less dependent on imports from abroad, which is great. 
And all of this despite unilateral U.S. sanctions against the country? Here to help us understand how Nicaragua is and how other developing economies can feed their people, writer Rohan Rice posted the People's Dispatch article, Hunger and Food Production in Nicaragua, How Do We Feed the People?, which you can find at peoplesdispatch.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rohan. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for being on our show. This is a fascinating article. You write that food security should be at the top of every government's agenda. However, since 2014, world hunger has been steadily increasing. In 2019, it was thought that around 750 million people, approximately one in every 10 people around the world, were exposed to severe levels of food insecurity. With the effects of COVID-19 on the global food supply, this number is expected to rise to 840 million in less than two years. This is the part that I never really understand, Rohan. The world's total wealth is growing. So pandemic aside, why is food insecurity growing? What is happening with the wealth if it's not going towards feeding people? Right. Well, it, it needs, we need to make profit, right? That's, that's the motive of capitalists. So if you got a damage to the industrial food chain, uh, to the raw materials that make up that chain, then you have a damage to profits. So the best way to ensure those profits is essentially to um, to kind of market off all that uh, that can be uh, that makes up those those markets, right? That makes up that chain. So you're stopping people um, from ga- gaining food, but at the same time, you're also ensuring your profits. So that's why you might see this um, kind of asymmetrical relationship between global profits and uh, people's hunger. Do you think that the people of Nicaragua have figured out that there is a disconnect between food and profits? I think for the people of Nicaragua, they wanted to ensure that everyone had the absolute basics, right? As every government should. Um, I don't think the people kind of sat down and had a sort of assembly and said, right, we are going to uh, make sure that uh, we are feeding absolutely everyone. But I think the Sandinistas, uh, when they came to power in 2007, they understood that we need to meet um, all the basic demands of people uh, and that includes food, but it also included water, it also included sanitation, it also included housing. So the best way for them to make sure that people had the food they needed was was food sovereignty model. Um, the reason being is that it, it, it equally distributes the land more than anything else um, to small farmers and to regular families and to the people of Nicaragua. So... You can't really talk about food sovereignty without talking about land rights. Um, And this is kind of the crux of the issue for a lot of countries. They don't want to redistribute that land. Um, Bolivia did a very similar thing in 2000, uh, uh, since since the election of Morales uh, in the late 2000s. Land titling in Bolivia was was really key to one of the uh, key policy of Morales uh, as an indigenous president, um, but also as a, as a syndicalist. Um, you know, he had a background really in as a union man. He had a background in the unions, um, as well as being a, um, a member of the indigenous community there. Um, so he understood that to really um, to really handle the power back to workers, 
this needs to be done through a land retitling because you know, Bolivia is a predominantly an agricultural society as Nicaragua is. So when we talk about empowering workers and redistributing wealth uh, and putting um, uh, means of production back in the hands of the workers, then we have to talk about land redistribution. Daniel Ortega is the current president. He was elected in 2007. He was also president up until 1990. From 1990 to 2007, there was a string of pro-U.S. right-wing presidents within Nicaragua. How much do you think Daniel Ortega's re-election in 2007, after 17 years, 16 years of not being in power, how much do you think that was driven by the hunger crisis that Nicaragua was facing? I think it was integral. I think um, hunger alongside education were two of the main reasons that Ortega came back into power uh, in 2006-07. I think, you know, hunger is is generally at the core of why most, and I point this out in my article, why most civilizations decline and why most societies revolt. So we can't really talk about revolution without thinking about hunger. Um, This is, you know, being... at the, at the core of many post-colonial movements uh, around the world, particularly in Africa, um, agricultural revolution we talk about uh, in Sudan, for example. And I think the, uh, the revolution in the 70s was an agricultural revolution um, because you know, food was, at the, was one of the key problems for people under the US dictatorship prior to that, um, where people were lucky if they got one meal a day. Um, and I'm talking about you know, the majority of people here and not the capitalist landlords who, who own the plantations. Um, and so then I think, again, you saw a steep decline in, in food security during the neoliberal period. And people went hungry. And again, they realized that uh, to, to, to make sure that their bellies are full and to make sure that they have the land they need to grow the food, uh, that the socialist government of the FSLN was the only real solution. So is feeding the people then... Is it seen by the United States as an anti-capitalist uprising or revolution? I think food operates like any other commodity, and of course it shouldn't really be a commodity, you know, um, where it's coupled within the larger capitalist free market system. So I point out in my piece that, you know, the industrial food chain and agribusiness consumes about 90% of the combustible energy that the uh, uh, global food chain uses. So that is because the food chain and the combustible energy industry is, of course, uh, bound up together, Uh, just in the same way that you have the plastic industry and uh, the oil industry bound up together. So any disruption to the food chain is going to have a knock-on effect on the monopolies uh, that the U.S. predominantly control. So the U.S. don't want to see people seizing uh, their own food production because this will have a, a wider effect on on their monopolies globally. Um, in the U.S., I don't know how popular the idea of food sovereignty is, but of course, it's it's catching on uh, across many places in 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 Latin America. I mean, as a term, it's it's been around since the mid 90s, but. Uh, it's as a concept, of course, it's been around for as long as indigenous people have have been around. So um, it's it's something that is definitely sp- is spreading across Latin America. And I think this is the reason that the U.S. has um, kind of doubled down on its imperialist ambitions in places like Peru and places like Bolivia and places like uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela, where uh, they're beginning to uncouple from. Uh, 
the industrial food chain um, amongst, amongst other monopolies. And you point out that the Global Hunger Index uses data from the United Nations and other multilateral or agencies to determine hunger levels in countries around the world. There's five hunger levels ranging from the lowest, level one, to extremely alarming, level five. Nicaragua's hunger score is currently at a level two, which is good, moderate hunger levels on their index. In 2000, under President Arnoldo Aleman, at the height of neoliberal governance in Nicaragua, the country was at a level Three, alarming hunger levels. Since the FSLN, since the Sandinista were elected in 2006, hunger has been declining rapidly. So what conditions did neoliberalism create that caused alarming hunger levels in Nicaragua during the early part of the century? What is the effect of neoliberalism on the ability to feed people? Well, without risk of sounding like a broken record, I mean, I come back to the idea of land. Um, from 1990, when the uh, the neoliberal, friendly U.S. government was elected, they rolled back many of the land redistribution programs that the Sandinistas had initiated, and you know, within that, you're um, disrupting people's capacity to grow their own food and to control their food production. Um, so you know, this is of course it harks back to settler colonialism and 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 seizing land from people um, to benefit just a small minority. Um, so it's under the conditions of neoliberalism where where land is monopolised and controlled by a few mega corporations or by foreign governments. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that you saw such a steep rise in hunger uh, during the 1990s. Uh, was this reversal of, of land reforms and land retitling. You also saw the invitation of kind of free market um, enterprises and corporations or, or TNCs, uh, transnational corporations, into Nicaragua from that point onwards. So you again have uh, global corporations coming in and and kind of showering the market with their uh, with their products, uh, both their food products, but also uh, things like their GMO seeds, their pesticides, their herbicides. Um, and these have a huge effect as well on local farming. We've seen that pesticide use um, on, let's say, an agribusiness uh, farm would affect all the surrounding farms, even if they're not using, of course, pesticides and herbicides, um, because it disrupts the local environment, it disrupts the uh, local flora and fauna, um, and the biodiversity in the area. So the local farms, even if they're not using pesticides, are going to see that effect, right? They're going to see more pests, um, they're going to see more rot and more and more fungus spreading um, to their to their plants um, because of the local TNCs using products and they're not. And you write that since the 2006 election of FSLN, the Sandinista, overall there has been a 40.8% reduction in hunger, according to the index. Nicaragua is one of only 38 countries to reach the UN Millennium Development Goal of cutting malnutrition by half. This is an even more impressive feat for a socialist country that has been under unilateral sanctions. When we talk about trade sanctions here in the United States, we might think of you know Venezuela or Cuba, as you point out in your article. But I don't think people think of Nicaragua. Back in October, as the Associated Press reported, 
Since late 2017, some 24 people close to Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega and Vice President Rosario Murillo have been sanctioned, including Murillo herself and three of her children with Ortega. On June 9th, Reuters reported the United States imposed sanctions on four more Nicaraguans, including a daughter of President Ortega, and Washington warned it would continue to use diplomatic and economic tools against members of the leftist government that it accused of undermining democracy. So how are sanctions currently affecting the Nicaraguan people's ability to have access to food at this moment? I mean, after all, you know, Ortega's daughter is also a senior government official. She has sanctions against her, uh, as well as the president of the Central Bank of Nicaragua, a deputy of the Nicaraguan National Assembly, a brigadier general of the Nicaraguan Army, and executive director of the Military Social Welfare Institute. These are all sanctions on individuals, as we are told. They are not sanctions on the people of Nicaragua. So how do these sanctions on these individuals affect the ability for Nicaraguans to feed themselves? Many of these these sanctions against um, government officials, for example, uh, they, they stunt their ability to, uh, to take out loans uh, from from the kind of developmental banks, which would otherwise help uh, a developing country like Nicaragua. So this is one of the, the principal um, repercussions of, of these sanctions on individuals. So why it might seem quite innocent to simply sanction an individual, uh, if you target the right kind of in- individual, then this will have a, a trickle-down effect uh, on the local population who, who won't see the kind of investment that they need um, to then then put together their their local cooperatives or sustain their farming unions or to just ex- simply access the kind of loans to get uh, agricultural products and machinery which they would need. Um, so this is one of the kind of pernicious effects of, of sanctioning uh, individuals in Nicaragua. But in some ways, it, it's funny because it's, it's it's made the people rally around the idea of food sovereignty. So it, it's... The U.S. here is their own worst enemy because the people have understood now that with sanctions like you have in Venezuela and, and Cuba, and they've seen the debilitating effects this has had uh, on food imports in those countries, they've realized the necessity of, of food sovereignty and developing their own food systems because they can see how these uh, sanctions can develop and will develop as time goes on, the longer that the FSLN is in power, um, especially, I think, if they are not toppled by the U.S. government this year, um, the U.S. is going gonna, is gonna to keep ratcheting up these sanctions, and we could see a, a complete blockade uh, of, of Nicaragua, like we do in in Cuba. Um, we've we know that the U.S. is not afraid to weaponize food, as they have uh, many socialist, against many other socialist countries around the world. So uh, this is really just the, uh, just the start of the sanctions regime. Um, if if the FSLN manages to, manages to stay in power. Is Nicaragua's level of food sovereignty dependent upon the environment? Is Nicaragua uniquely suited to have food sovereignty in a way that places that have much more serious hunger problems because of U.S. sanctions and embargoes like Venezuela or Cuba are not? So is this a unique situation because of the conditions within Nicaragua? I wouldn't say that uh, Nicaragua has more arable land, for example, than than Cuba or uh, than Venezuela. So I don't think it's unique to the environment of Nicaragua per se uh, that they have managed to achieve food sovereignty. 
Um, of course, they don't perhaps suffer the, some of the debilitating droughts we might see in, in parts of in parts of Africa, which impede uh, their growing efforts. But you know, Nicaragua has its own uh, violent weather systems. You know, it's 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 really at the uh, been a victim to many severe hurricanes over the years, Category 4 and Category 5 hurricanes, which are only going to get worse. And they're talking about, you know, inventing new categories for these hurricanes because they're becoming so violent. So Nicaragua certainly isn't in the best place location to to have a food sovereign model. Uh, it's also, you know, has dozens of volcanoes, uh, which can be volatile. Um, so... And and it, it's you know it's a coastal nation as well. So again, the rising sea levels can also severely affect um, coastal growing projects. So it certainly has its challenges, no more so than any, any other country. I think um, I don't think it has any particular advantages in that sense. No. So it's not a model. A food sovereignty is not a model that is dependent on how fertile the environment is. I think I think you can make use of whatever you have, and and many uh, there are many incredible. Uh, agroecologists out there, um, particularly part of the La Via Campesina movement, uh, which is the, the kind of global peasant food movement, um, who have shown this. You know, we, there, there are people, farmers in, in, in Kenya and in Eritrea, uh, in parts of India and in Bangladesh, um, all over the world, which having to respond to very unique um, environmental crises um, and have managed to still develop kind of small uh, food sovereign models or at least agroecological means of farming um, a big part of this comes down to are you willing to use what you have and are you willing to grow native species and consume native foods uh, and and whatnot in a way which for example in Britain people simply are not uh, you know we we insist on having uh, foreign products um, so the idea here that we might develop food sovereignty is it kind of scares a lot of people because it might mean it might mean prioritizing certain foods than I used to, you know, and having to consume native foods, which seafoods, which we don't eat, for example. Um, and I said we want to import our our bananas and our coffees and and our expensive sugar uh, consumption. So how much is that kind of food system, that kind of food distribution? How much is that driven by white privilege? <laughs> Um, hugely. I mean, uh, definitely so. I mean, it's it's something that you see that's very uh, much um, unique in, I think, in the global North countries and in Europe and the USA, uh, where people have this certain privilege and entitlement to have certain foods. But this is really bound up in, in colonialism. Um, you know, this comes back to, to uh, the kind of 19th century colonial food models where Britain was one of the largest importers of food, uh, usually from its colonies. Uh, and this really changed the diet of British people. Um, even wheat, for example, uh, br bread consumption skyrocketed uh, in the 1800s because now Britain was importing um, just, you know, shiploads of wheat from its colonies. Um, so then we started, you know, eating our terrible, terrible bread that we get here. Um, or even our sugar, our sugar habit here in Britain again comes from our colonial ventures. So it's it's very much you can't really uh, separate the kind of colonial mentality and white privilege from uh, food from the food models and the food chain. 
You also point out that Nicaragua's food sovereignty model has been a cornerstone of the Sandinista revolution, as you were saying. It illustrates a system of food production that is completely antithetical to the industrial food chain that has caused these widespread disparities in hunger levels and destroyed the natural environment. If Nicaragua's food sovereignty model is antithetical to the industrial food chain that we're familiar with here in the United States, how difficult is it to deindustrialize and stay deindustrialize? How many pressures do you get from the outside world to have the industrial food sector come back into Nicaragua? I think that's one of the big things actually driving the current uh, U.S. imperialist interference in Nicaragua. I mean, there is there is there are several reasons behind this. I'd say you know one is U.S.'s kind of historic crusade against socialism, which we all know quite well. Uh, the other, of course, is just uh, capitalist demands for super profit, um, and they, they hate seeing any kind of territory go untapped, <laughs> virgin territory. Um, but the third, yeah, would certainly be Nicaragua setting an example of food sovereignty. I really think this bothers the U.S., um, who are kind of championing the industrial food chain. Um, I don't know if the U.S. has the same problem as much as the U.K., but the U.K., for example, we have seen a steep, steep decline in uh, soil fertility here. And you have even very conservative members of parliament here, like Michael Gove, the minister of uh, the cabinet, saying that Britain only has 30 to 40 harvests left, or 30 to 40 years left, before we completely erode our soil. And I can only guess that the US is on a similar path. I've also seen some of the devastation of recent heat waves there in the in the West Coast, um, and in places like Portland and in Canada. So you're going to see a steep decline in soil fertility in the US as well. Um, I think many of uh, the Western Global North governments are anticipating this uh, and tapping into countries like Nicaragua who are actually protecting their soil uh, is is kind of key for them uh, in, their, in their current and their future imperialist ventures. So you're going to see an insane amount of pressure, I think, on countries like Nicaragua um, and other Global South countries which have quite arable soil or are putting forward uh, food sovereign uh, agroecological models because they are going to protect their their land from the same sort of soil um, erosion that we are seeing in the global north, um, particularly in the US and the UK. So you certainly, uh, certainly, I think it is it's challenging for Nicaragua to to um, to resist the encroachment of um, the industrial food chain. Um, it has, of course, made concessions, like I point out in my article, to almost appease uh, these uh, the, to appease these capitalists who who want a piece of uh, Nicaraguan pie. Um, you know, they they've allowed various TNCs to operate. Um, of course, this is, like I say, to some benefit for for Nicaragua, whose food sovereign model isn't completely 100% yet. So they can't completely feed the people. So it does benefit them to have uh, a few TNCs knocking about in their country. Um, but I think, pr by and large, it's been a process of appeasement of the of global markets, um, because otherwise you're you're on a warpath. And <laughs> I think that's that's the problem for a lot of socialist countries. I mean, you're either um, in a constant fight against capitalism or you have to make concessions here and there because you're in a, in a small minority of, of countries who are resisting uh, market totalitarianism. Um, the USSR, you know, spent most of its 
um, history fighting, <laughs> fighting USA and, and fighting capitalism. And it's just not sustainable for someone like Nicaragua to, to get involved in those sort of military conflicts. So all it can really do is make uh, the odd appeasement here and there and then um, focus mostly though on, on what it wants to do, which is food sovereignty and uh, putting people before before profits. You write that agroecology is a sustainable form of farming that combines contemporary knowledge and indigenous practices to cultivate food. So is agroecology, or to what degree is agroecology, anti-technology? It's not anti-technology. I, I wouldn't say that. I would say it is, uh, there is skepticism about technological solutions, certainly. Um in the same way that I think the renewable energy sector and those who are pushing for kind of a green revolution globally, uh, there's a two camps there, right? There are those who want to kind of prioritize uh, more uh, indigenous practices and understanding the land and working harmoniously with the land. And there are those who think that the only solution is technology, right? Um, and I think... Nicaragua falls into the kind of former camp, right, where it understands that actually a lot of these technological solutions really just benefit capitalism and are really there to extract more profits, right? Uh, you see that with things like biomass um, and you see that with green cars, right, and electrical batteries uh, for, 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 for electrical cars. So I don't think uh, agroecology is anti-technology whatsoever, but there is a healthy skepticism of some of the technological solutions being posited. Um, I think it prioritizes indigenous knowledge first and foremost, as it should, um, but I think it is willing to, to learn and, and explore some technological solutions if they are advantageous to the people. You also point out that agribusiness is harming our environment. Not only does the destruction of forests by transnational corporations for animal husbandry and crop farming exacerbate the spread of zoonotic diseases like COVID-19, but the disruption of these environments, namely the soil, speeds up climate change by releasing more carbon into the atmosphere through monocultural cash crop production. They also exacerbate crop diseases like coffee rust, which disproportionately hurts smallholder farmers. So did agribusiness just simply become unsustainable in Nicaragua and where the people just forced to find an alternative way to feed themselves. I think, you know, agribusiness never got a strong, strong foothold in Nicaragua um, because of the constant pressure of the FSLN uh, from, from 79. I mean, of course, before that you had agribusiness, but it, I would call it more like uh, slavery, to be honest, and, and which was a form of agribusiness, but um, it, it was a slave plantation model before 79. So agribusiness never got a strong foothold in Nicaragua, but it, it's, certain, it's, 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 it's true to say that it's completely unsustainable. Um, it is the primary cause of uh, environmental destruction globally. And um, I think across Latin America, you have seen a wide uh, destruction of native forests and, and jungles for agribusiness. And this has had a tremendous effect on indigenous people predominantly. Um, 
And Nicaragua does have a, a strong indigenous community who are protected and who are prioritized and who do have strong rights, despite what you might read in the corporate media. So I think a lot of pressure from the FSLN and from indigenous communities in Nicaragua have managed to halt the process of agribusiness um, because they've seen it as something which is inherently um, unsustainable. Um, and But this, this, this has also traveled kind of up the chain of command. You had people like uh, Paul Oquist, who, who recently passed away, um, who really championed on the global stage at, at COP conferences, for example, uh, the agroecological model and for a sustainable farming uh, across the world. So Nicaragua has really taken its fight to the global stage, uh, which has been really heartening to see. You mentioned the, the TNC, the transnational corporation, Saigenta, owned by ChemChina, with an average revenue of over $13 billion in U.S. dollars. They run the Frijolnica program, which, quote, provides growers with inputs, technologies, access to credit and technical support so they could increase their income. You write that in reality, this is the promotion of Saigenta products that lock you into using Saigenta products. Saigenta develops seeds, for example, that respond only to Saigenta produce herbicides. In their own words, the program was specifically set up to counter geographical, agroecological, and cultural forms of bean production and replace them with the Saigenta way. So how Hmm. aggressively are transnational corporations opposed to agroecology, not just in Nicaragua, but around the world. It's very explicit. And, and that's, it was, it's one of the most uh, perfect examples of the kind of um, missions they're pursuing and the tactics they're using, um, where they will tap into what they know to be a, um, a, local, a local produce, uh, which, which means a lot to the people and is consumed on a vast scale by that people. And they'll target that specifically uh, with their corporation techniques and with their GMO seeds uh, and with their um, pesticides. So it's been a very aggressive rollout by some of these TNCs, uh, very pernicious, very underhand. I talk about um, as well the way that Cargill has you know, set up kitchens within schools uh, and, and universities um, ag- sorry, should I say agricultural schools and universities um, to then teach them how to use their products and get them kind of dependent on their products. So globally, you've seen extensive rollout of these kind of programs, many of which have failed uh, spectacularly because they simply um, do not compare to small holding, uh, smallholder farming. Um they are usually producing on parity with smallholder farming. Um, and the nutritional value of agroecological farming it surpasses that of, of that of the agribusiness. So even though they try to aggressively roll out these programs, a lot of farmers, like happened in Nicaragua, after maybe trying it out for a few years, tend to return back to the traditional forms of knowledge and growing that they know because – uh, they can see, even if they haven't read the scientific papers that that I have been reading, um, that is simply not um, it's not really a great way to actually produce food because it simply does not produce the requisite uh, or doesn't produce a particularly advantageous yield, um, and it ends up being more expensive because you're locked into just one form of product, so you can't source different kinds of seeds, you can't source different kinds of 
um, herbicides if that's what you want to do. So the TNCs have come up with very careful strategies within each independent market uh, as shown by that, by the targeting of, for example, the bean market in Nicaragua. Um, to yeah, they, they, to 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 create these these systems which disrupt the indigenous uh, or peasant food webs in those countries. So, what makes that attractive to you? Point out rural, uh, low-income women farmers who are often the target of these kind of programs from uh, Cargill. Some of them, which simply will see you know a large corporation come into town and 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 make a lot of promises and they're going to buy into it. They're going to see a corporation uh, which will say, hey, you can increase your yield, you can make more money, or we'll also uh, give you access to our distribution centers and our distribution markets, so we'll do some of that legwork for you uh, and make sure you're getting that check. So, of course, that's going to seem appealing to a struggling um, peasant Campesina woman out in Nicaragua, right? Uh, initially, where she's struggling to uh, feed maybe her family, or she has to work uh, extensive amount of hours on the farm to do that. Um, so she's gonna see like that as an easy uh, solution. Um, but within a certain amount of years, more or less, that they're realizing that it's actually pernicious, and they don't have their best interests at heart. And it's actually going to damage their agricultural output. So thankfully, I think in places like Nicaragua, you have the government and you have local unions and cooperatives combating uh, those initiatives with their own agroecological food sovereign initiatives. Like you have um, uh, the Gloria Quintanilla uh, Women's Cooperative uh, in Nicaragua. You have um, the Asociación de Trabajadores del Campo, the Rural Workers Association, uh, and you have Sopecha. Uh, so these are all different kind of um, cooperatives and unions that are out there creating programs who actually support these same women who have then been targeted by uh, TNCs. Without that network in other countries, it's, it's much more difficult. Um, and that's why I think you know a lot of people end up getting locked into these contracts with TNCs because they don't have any other alternatives, um, and they don't have a government which is subsidising these other alternatives. So it's very important that that if I think you want to pivot away from the TNCs and and stop people uh, signing up to these um, these pernicious contracts, and you have to support an alternative model, you have to support the unions and the cooperatives of your country to actually create um, holistic agroecological farming solutions. And you mentioned how the it, this whole system is heavily government subsidized. So how economically, how financially sustainable is this? Sustainable is this? Um, I think in, in Nicaragua, they've had no real issues subsidizing this kind of farming because the amount of investment that's needed is is fairly low. I mean, there's going to be, of course, the initial seed money, literally here, but um, also more metaphorically, you know, and help them access maybe some of the um, uh, these some of the agric agricultural technology that they're going to use. But the, at the very core of food sovereignty and agroecology is sustainability and is creating a system which almost looks after itself because it's a very holistic approach to farming, 
right? You're creating a symbiotic relationship between uh, between your crops, between uh, the mammals in the local environment, between the insects and between the birds to make sure that you're actually doing almost less work, um, right? So that you have the the birds which are actually managing for example, the local pests that you might get. So ultimately, the level of investment needed is only a very small and uh, is, is only really short term because once agroecological farms are up and running, they're very sustainable and they're very self-sufficient. Um, and in fact, it's it's agribusiness which requires the constant investment because you need to constantly apply herbicides and pesticides um, and you can often only use the one kind of product uh, if you're buying from Syngenta, for example. So it's it's agribusiness which is far less financially viable for your regular uh, peasant farmer, uh, which of course is exactly what uh, the TNCs and the, and the capitalist class will want because then they're making their super profits. And you also mentioned how it's inefficient. So if it's bad for a government's bottom line, if it's inefficient when it comes to capitalism, it's kind of a big question. Uh, why is it pursued? <laughs> it's pursued by a small class of people. And this is the thing. But this class is this is the class of people that have the current power and have control the the markets and the world that we live in today. So, of course, you know, like I, I pointed out earlier, these systems are coupled up with other large um, monopolies, uh, the oil industry, for one, um, and, and other kind of mineral industries. So when you talk about trying to disrupt um, agribusiness, you're talking about trying to disrupt the entire capitalist system, really. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's it's when you ask that question, you're you're kind of asking – you know, why Why do we pursue capitalism in the first place, right? Because it only really benefits a few handful of people. So <laughs> that's what we have to really ask ourselves. Um, but, you know, we, we live under a, a totalitarian capitalist system. So this is why agribusiness is pursued, because it, it aligns with that. It aligns with super profits. Um, and it, it, it benefits those in the, particularly those in the global north. So, um, you know, I think that's why global south countries like Nicaragua are more keen to pursue food sovereignty and agroecology because it's inherently anti-imperialist. It's inherently anti-capitalist. Um, and that's why I think you can differentiate uh, countries which are maybe more authentically anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist from those which are less so um, through their pursuit of food, right? So that's how you can see that Nicaragua is inherently an anti-capitalist society and a true anti-capitalist society because it's actually trying to disrupt the agribusiness industrial food chain, um, whereas maybe other governments might be paying certain lip service to anti-imperialism. Um, and you can see that by actually analyzing what policies are they implementing regarding food uh, and the other core elements of society. You write, as uh, La Via Campesina's Marlon Sanchez describes agroecology as one of the principal pillars of food sovereignty. It helps to regenerate the land destroyed by intensive farming through diversification of crops, developing natural pest controls, no chemicals, protecting and improving soil health, and using local renewable resources. In animal farming, the rights, health, and respect of the animal are prioritized. Agroecology 
has even been proven to increase the nutritional value of the food. How mm-hmm. can respect for the rights of an animal increase nutritional value? Why should the rights of the animal be prioritized when we are just using them for livestock? Well, this is the thing. We're not in the agroecological model. We're not simply using them for livestock. Um, we're creating a holistic system in which the animals actually benefit the farm. Right, they're, they're going to provide a natural pest control. They're going to provide natural fertilizer. Um, so they're not simply there for slaughter. Um, when you have animals that are purely there for slaughter, um, then you're going to create systems in which they are uh, essentially in in an environment which is going to breed disease, uh, in an environment which you don't really care about their rights and their well-being, because why would you if you're just going to slaughter them anyway at the end of the day? But when you need that animal to actually sustain your farm, um, then you're going to, of course, prioritize its rights and its health, mostly. Um, so that's why it's really important within agroecology to, uh, to actually prioritize the health of the animal as much as anything else. Um, so then when we talk about actually nutritional value, um, you know, there are papers which show, uh, particularly within cattle farming, that, uh, yeah, the nutritional value uh, of, the, of the beef actually increases because they are treated well. Um, that then, of course, is better for the people who are going to consume it. We've seen now how much of the food that we're causing today um, is, is making us sick, simply. And it is leading to increases in, in cancer. Um, whereas if we increase the nutritional value of the food and we lower, for example, the cholesterol, uh, which is contained within the beef, um, which is something that agroecological beef farming does do, uh, then you're going to see less people with the kind of long-term conditions that high cholesterol will bring. Is agroecology anti-globalization? I wouldn't say agroecology is anti-globalization. I'd say it uh, prioritizes a local sustainable model. Um, and I think those two words have to go together. Uh, local is sustainable, sustainable is local. Um, I would say that you know, agroecology is in kind of its nascent days. So it will be interesting to see how it develops and responds perhaps to uh, global food demands. Uh, but at the moment, We've seen how it can successfully respond to, uh, I think, let's say, let's take coffee as an example, uh, to the demands of of foreign markets. Um, Through agroecological farming, you can still produce the same amount of yields as you did with agribusiness farming. So the coffee producers in Nicaragua are still going to be able to produce the same amount of coffee um, both for their own local consumption and for export as they did before. So, no, it's not necessarily anti-globalization in the sense that it can still provide for a global market. But if we're talking about globalization in capitalist terms, as in globalization as almost a euphemism for capitalism, then yes, of course, it's anti-capitalist, therefore anti-globalist. Um, but it, it, it can provide for the global market, if that's, if that's what you mean. As sociologist Caitlin Schering pointed out on our show a couple weeks ago while discussing water sovereignty in Brazil, La Via Campesina is a transnational social movement representing 300 million people across five continents with over 150 member organizations committed to food sovereignty and climate justice. So are students coming in from other countries where La Via Campesina is active? To what extent can 
Nicaragua become an incubator for a regional, if not a global, deindustrialized food system based on agroecology? I mean, it already has. It's already taken those those first steps for sure. I mean, the first um, IALA Institute, the um, Latin American Institute for Agroecological Studies, is based in in Nicaragua, and they've taken many foreign students and, and in fact, subsidized those students um, and and given them very generous visa programs in Nicaragua. So, Nicaragua can certainly be given if it's given the room to. Uh, to be an incubator, like you say, for for agroecology and uh, deindustrialized food movement, um, of course, the concern is right now uh, an imperialist war on the horizon, an imperialist coup on the horizon, um, perhaps even by the end of the year. So, you know, while it's it's, it's great to sit here and, and talk to you about agroecology and uh, sustainable food models, uh, at the same time, uh, there's also big concerns in Nicaragua about. Uh, the potential for for another coup this year or coup attempt this year as there was in 2018. Um, so hopefully, though, if Nicaragua is given the space and if we manage to uh, oppose the current imperialist interventions and the Sandinistas win in November, which they are set to do if the elections are held without American interference, then, yeah, for sure, uh, Nicaragua could easily be a, a, um, a center for agroecology globally, uh, particularly in Latin America, in which already you've seen Venezuelans, uh, people from Costa Rica, people from Bolivia coming to uh, Nicaragua to learn uh, this incredible method of farming. Again, as Reuters reported back on June 9th, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken urged President Ortega to release detained presidential candidates as well as other civil society and opposition leaders arrested over the first week of June in what Secretary Blinken called a wave of repression. However, quote, police statements accused the detained politicians of working with foreign financing to carry out acts of terrorism and destabilization without giving details on the evening of June 9th. Police surrounded the house of the former director of the American Nicaraguan Chamber of Commerce, Mario Arana, according to a relative who spoke to Reuters. A police order that was circulated in local media with Arana's personal details described his crimes as compromising the peace or dignity of the republic. So who is going to be the Sandinista governments? Who's going to be Daniel Ortega's competition in November's election? Well, you have about 17 parties <laughs> running uh, for the election in November. Uh, so there is plenty of opposition figures out there to oppose uh, Ortega. Um, two parties have uh, withdrawn um, themselves or, uh, you know, one had a uh, uh, one 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 withdrew and the, and the second one uh, had its uh, electoral license kind of revoked from it because it broke electoral laws. Um, but then you have 17 other parties willing to oppose Ortega. So there's plenty of opposition out there. Um, and I don't think the U.S. Uh, corporate media has to, has to panic about whether there's going to be anyone running against Ortega in November. Is the opposition on both the left and the right? It is there. I mean, there are left uh, alliances which are still running against Ortega, um, and there are right uh, alliances running against Ortega. I mean, these these seventeen parties are generally grouped into alliances. Um, there are some there are indigenous groups which are running with Ortega as well. Um, but yeah, there's plenty of a very healthy democratic race in comparison to uh, the U.S. or the U.K. 
We have been speaking with Rohan Rice, who posted the People's Dispatch article, Hunger and Food Production in Nicaragua, How Do We Feed the People, which you can find at peoplesdispatch.org. One last question for you, and our final question as we, is for all of our guests, I, I promise. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write that across all of Latin America, the harm caused by agribusiness is widespread. The continent is increasingly being used as the world's farm by just a handful of transnational corporations. 80% of deforested land in Latin America is simply used to grow animal feed, in particular bovine and pig feed. That is to say the crop grown on these deforested lands is not even directly consumed by the people. So what would happen if Latin America simply refused to continue to destroy itself in order to be the world's farm? Can the world survive or would it if we just if would it, or would it just all turn to agroecology? Can can the world survive without Latin America being our farm? Of course it can. <laughs> of course it can. Um, you know, but that's that would mean giving up the imperialist system of food extraction. It would mean giving up uh, capitalist super profits. Um, it would mean people perhaps giving up some of their white privilege and saying that they can't get access to all the avocados that they want. Um, that's what it would mean. It would mean people perhaps having to return to the land of their own countries and actually farming their own lands and understanding where their food comes from um, and actually saving the planet in turn by creating sustainable farming methods. But it's not just a matter of consumer choice, correct? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, consumers can always play a small part in this, but this is definitely driven by a global imperialist capitalist system at the behest of just a few people. I cannot thank you enough. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm going to annoy you in the future with future interview requests because this has really been a great talk. Make sure you check out <laughs> Rohan's writing at People's Dispatch. It's also been republished over a monthly review, but go to People's Dispatch instead. Hunger and food production in Nicaragua. How do we feed the people? Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. If you liked our conversation on how Nicaragua pursued and is pursuing food sovereignty, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all of our merchandise, or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday morning at 10 a.m. live at patreon.com slash thisishell and his podcast shortly after at the same place. Each one of those Patreon podcasts includes a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Egon, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering so far. Well, Chuck, this week's question from hell is, what can you do? that a robot can't that's what can you do that a robot can't uh our first response is the obvious one from aaron k which is masturbate question mark jesus <laughs> i'm pretty sure i've seen a robot do that yeah i mean you know yeah uh fabio l says go into debt very very uh you know very on the nose henrik h says get stoned question mark <laughs> Zach N says, complete a CAPTCHA test, duh, which I like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and maybe... Uh, that maybe, is a good one. Maybe picking the bus out of the picture, too, right? <laughs> I like with my vision, they say, pick all the uh, pictures that has a street light in them. And you're like, I don't know. I can't see 
tiny street lights. And and there's always that one that has just just a corner tiny bit of a street lamp, and you're like, does this count? Right, exactly. <clears throat> um, let's see here. What can you do that a robot can't? Uh, Dan K says, "F up a wet dream." Hmm. We have Garrett S says, "Whatever a spider can," and they've dropped a very a very sexy Spider-Man GIF into, <laughs> the, into the, the thing. <laughs> that sounds disturbing. Oh, it of course it is. <laughs> uh, Adam A says, "At will productivity reduction." <laughs> we have uh, Shahila. Uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing your name right. Shahila C says, doesn't know how pleasure feels like. Mm-hmm. We've got Scott W. who says poop. <laughs> Although I think I have seen a robot poop as well. So, you know. I think it was that masturbating robot. That's only <laughs> You know, I mean, it, they're, they're really working it yeah. on all fronts. Uh, when we got two more here, we've got Joe G says, alienate all friends and family, <laughs> which I can, I can relate to that one, I got to say. Yeah. And then uh, Aaron D simply says, cry. <laughs> At least nobody, oh, I don't want to, oh, I don't want to give out a possible answer. Again, the question from hell is, what can you do that a robot can't? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history on July 8th, 1876. 145 years ago this Thursday in Hamburg, South Carolina, a town across the Savannah River from Augusta, Georgia, which was populated mostly by African Americans recently freed from slavery. More than 100 white men from surrounding counties showed up for a court hearing prompted by an incident four days earlier. A white supremacist group known as the Red Shirts had demanded to cross the town's main street through the middle of a 4th of July centennial parade. Because remember, white supremacists are dicks who enjoy nothing more than they enjoy hate. They like displaying hate. They love spreading hate. It's almost like they're evil. The white supremacists were outraged at having their freedom of movement regulated and determined by black people in any way. And they arrived at the courthouse with guns, knives, axes, pitchforks, and even a small cannon. Because that's a great way to ensure your freedom of movement. The white supremacists were led by a man named Benjamin Tillman, also known as Pitchfork Ben. (laughs) And at the courthouse, they encountered some two dozen members of the local black militia who were also armed but severely outnumbered. The whites demanded that the black militiamen surrender their weapons, seeing that they were at an obvious disadvantage. The black men tried to flee. Thus began what would become known as the Hamburg Massacre. Another massacre of human beings of African descent by white supremacists that, unlike the 1921 Tulsa massacre, will not have a CNN special. In fact, the Hamburg massacre will go completely unmentioned by CNN because mainstream media apparently wants us to think Tulsa was an anomaly when it was actually a very regular happening and occurrence in the post-Civil War United States. The whites pursued the black militiamen throughout the night, shooting some of them dead in the street and wounding many more. Then they proceeded to loot the predominantly African-American town. A jury would later indict 94 white men. Go figure. Not one of them was found guilty. Go figure. The massacre drew national attention and encouraged copycat attacks across the South as the post-Civil War era of Reconstruction gave way to 
segregation, disenfranchisement, and Jim Crow. Another reminder, slavery did not end on Juneteenth. Pitchfork Ben went on to become governor of Georgia, naturally, and later a U.S. senator, of course. Meanwhile, the town of Hamburg was soon hit by the first in a series of floods that by 1929 would force all its residents to leave. Today, Hamburg is a ghost town. Its only remains are a few broken bridge piers in the Savannah River, and the rest is now a golf course. But a statue of Pitchfork Ben Tillman, dedicated in 1940, still stands in front of the South Carolina State House in the capital of Columbia. The statue of a white supremacist involved in a massacre of those who are of African descent is in front of the South Carolina State House. Boy, that's some Southern heritage and hospitality, hospitality, isn't it? Also in Rotten History on July 9th, 1993, 28 years ago this Friday, at the prominent law firm of Holden Day Wilson in downtown Toronto, 38-year-old lawyer named Gary Hoy was entertaining a group of student interns at an after-work party in the firm's offices on the 24th floor of the Toronto Dominion Centre. And because this is rotten history and Ronaldo points out that the party took place on the 24th floor, my fear of heights is going off. Before entering law school, Hoy had earned a degree in engineering. And even now, as a specialist in corporate and securities law, he retained a very keen interest in architecture. He was proud of Holden Day's offices in one of Toronto's newest and most modern glass and steel skyscrapers, and he always enjoyed showing visitors around the place. He had even come up with an entertaining trick to demonstrate the building's structural integrity. Holden Day enjoyed a commanding view of Toronto out of several large high-tech windows, which the builders had ensured were made of absolutely unbreakable glass. To show just how unbreakable they were, Hoy, who weighed 72 kilos, or about 160 pounds, would body slam one of the big windows and laugh as he bounced off it. It always made a great impression, and on this occasion, he once again had the interns into a conference room and did his trick. After bouncing off the glass once, he threw himself against it a second time. And once again, the glass did not break, because Hoy was correct in expecting it to withstand the load. However, he had failed to realize that his repeated stunt was subjecting the frame of the window to material fatigue, and this time the whole window popped out of its frame in one piece, and Hoy fell 24 stories to his death, and I totally called it. The incident made big news in Canada, where Hoy became known as the so-called Leaping Lawyer. I'm sure his family loved that name. It also proved so unnerving to potential clients of Holden Day that the firm began to lose business. Just three years later, after more than 30 partners had left the firm, Holden Day Wilson was forced to close down for good. That's Rotten History, and this is Hal Egon. Do we know who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after? Sure do. Uh, tomorrow on the show, we have Chris Tomlinson and Brian Burrow, and they're going to be on talking about their fascinating-sounding book, Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. And besides for Jeff Dorchin doing a moment of truth on Thursday, do we have any idea? Alex is working on it. <laughs> All right. So as I promised, here's how I learned about the private fireworks show that I have been watching from outside 12-foot-high fences that surround a country club since the early 1990s. So a friend of mine and I decided we would drop acid, 
take the metro commuter train to a northern suburb and then walk along Lake Michigan all the way home from Kenilworth, very, very fancy and rich suburb, which is about 15 miles away. We start out early in the day discovering that some North Shore suburbs do not allow non-residents, especially those who are tripping on their beaches, and some stretches are completely privately owned, unlike here in the city where it's all public. By the time we got back to the city, it was growing dark, and suddenly we started hearing the most bizarre sound I had ever heard. It was a firework exploding, but what followed is what made it so freaking weird. It was like the explosion was going through some sort of post-production synthesized effect, like a guitar pedal or something. Each boom would be followed by a whirring, and then what sounded like an artificial, you know, completely synthesized pop. We could not figure out what the noise was, so we kept walking toward the sound. As we walked down the lakefront, we could start, we just started seeing the fireworks causing the initial explosion and sounds but we could not decipher what was causing this like weird, eerie sound effect. By the time we got to where the fireworks were being set off, the show had ended and crowds were leaving the area. That's when we stumbled across two monsters, complete freaks. I don't know. We were tripping. All I know is they seemed huge, bulking humans, eight feet tall, five feet across, carrying three-foot-tall bongs, laughing as if they'd just raided a village. So I had excitedly asked if they had seen the fireworks. One said, yeah, you know, I realized that they, and that's when I realized that they were not holding bongs. They were holding mortars. I remember one of the mortars had an STP sticker on it. I don't know why I remember that. And it seemed like a cherished object and had been used a hundred times. That's when they told me they were the ones who were setting off the fireworks, who are doing the fireworks show, and that they do it every year for the Saddle and Cycle Country Club, which I'd never heard of before. So I asked how they made the weird, eerie, electronic-sounding echo, and that's when they explained it was caused by their fireworks not being fired higher than the nearby glass and steel high-rises, which are kind of at a diagonal towards them, so they're not like straight on like a square they're a little bit turned so it's like a diamond shape so the sound really reflects off the glass and steel i thought for sure that the echoes were augmented by my tripping and figured i would never hear that sound again unless of course i was tripping so the next year i returned bringing friends and with the very first boom there was that bizarre sound again that distinct whirring and popping that sounds nothing like the explosion and burst of the firework that was just shot off What I thought was a drug-induced hallucination was real. And for me, when I find a fireworks show that sounds like you're tripping when you're not, that's a fireworks show for me. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Thanks to our guest, Rohan Rice. Also, thanks to Egon Sheely for running the board. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guests and all of this week's guests. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is FBI agent Cooper's Hangover Cure from the 90s TV show Twin Peaks. Drink a glass of nearly frozen, unstrained tomato juice with a couple of oysters in it. Breathe deeply. Saute a mound of sweet breads, that's brains, with some chestnuts and other awful, and some uh, Canadian bacon as well. Finally, biscuits, big biscuits smothered in gravy, and some anchovies, but who knows what the hell you're supposed to do with them. With that said, we told you so. This 
is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>